0: calls in.
1: Lock, talk radio.
0: Um, it's live, so I can't control what they say. I'd have to block them right away.
1: Okay, that's fine.
0: Okay. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to negative uh, 20. And it's funny how we came up with that name, Rita. I don't know if you know that my buddy said it's always negative 20 here. We should call it negative 20. Oh. So that's what we did. <laughs>
1: that makes so sense. That's what we did. Being a North Dakotan
0: yeah you know what it's like
1: very cold cold is bad
0: yeah very bad (laughs) especially this winter it wasn't bad until february then it got super cold and we got all the snow yeah because january was in the 20s and 30s which is unusual then come uh um february the temperature dropped down a well below zero 50 below and it stayed there in february and then it uh, we got a lot of snow and now it's all gone, so not going to Yeah, complain. a lot of
1: the country's been under a nasty blanket of snow this last month.
0: You know, Minnesota's having a bad snowstorm tonight. I think some places are getting 39 inches.
1: Oh, my gosh. See? move to the <laughs> desert. It's the way to go.
0: <laughs> I loved. I lived in Phoenix <laughs> for a while, and I loved it there.
1: So what took you back to the wasteland of frozenness?
0: Well, you see my, my mother's originally from North Dakota and my grandmother got sick. So we kinda moved out here to help my grandmother and my wife and I and then my mother decided that uh she wanted to come out because my father had retired from what he was doing and they moved out here then <clears throat> and uh they've been here we've been here ever since. My grandmother had hmm. cancer and she passed and uh so we've been here since then.
1: Yeah, so I'm sorry to hear that.
0: Yeah. So, she was 90, so we can't complain. She did give it a good run, I guess.
1: Have you guys thought about going back to the Arizona or another warmer area?
0: Well, see, I was born and raised in Philadelphia. So was my wife and my kids. But I took her to Arizona, and we got to Phoenix, because that's where my sister was at. And I loved living in Phoenix when I lived there. But when I got to Phoenix... The day we pulled into town, my wife was uh, like seven and a half months pregnant. We pulled into Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And it was the hottest day in record in Phoenix. And she had never felt heat (laughs) like that before. She opened up the car door to go into the gas station to uh, get a bottle of water. And she didn't even get out of the car. She just shut the door and said, take me home. So we went (laughs) to my sister's, but never been back again. She can't take the heat like that. It was hot. So uh, other than that, yeah. It's a, uh, I try, but she says no. And I like the warmer weather, but Philadelphia's not bad for temperature. They don't get like it does Thanks. here. Nowhere near.
1: Well, you all are brave souls. I'll say that.
0: <laughs> so. Uh, how, yeah, let me just ask you a few questions. If we're just going to roll with it, if that's okay with you. Sure. Sure. And, uh, uh, what got you into the hobby of tarantulas and, uh, like, keeping snakes and stuff like that? Because, you know, I'm going to tell you, there isn't well, very many women in the hobby. There are starting to be more and more. But uh, I have never seen any on the scale that you are.
1: <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Um, you know, it's I've always been interested in animals my whole life. I grew up around some animals. I spent time in California where there were quite a few snakes and lots of amphibians. I even liked, there were a lot of slugs and um, snails and stuff, big ones, tree frogs, neat stuff in California. Of course, in Montana, there were snakes, frogs, turtles, quite a quite a few things. North Dakota, not so much,
0: but um, still, you could find critters if you looked hard enough.
1: And then when I moved out to the southwest there were big crazy invertebrates giant scorpions centipedes vinegaroons tarantulas and um I mean it just I just kind of went nuts from there I was blown away by these huge animals that you know just look like aliens walking around your yard, and I was just absolutely fascinated. It was neat to see that, for the most part, they were harmless and just looked totally unreal, but, you know, were handleable. Um, And I, you know, just, I was very interested in um, native wildlife wherever I went, and then in the 90s started getting into uh, exotic wildlife and then of course you know I mean the possibilities are endless from there so started breeding tarantulas and any reptiles I could get my hands on and the rest is history you see what I'm doing now kind of a little bit of everything
0: yeah you guys uh, there's a link for her YouTube channel in the uh, description if people want to go if there's anybody on here that's not uh, familiar with who you are which I find that hard to believe because (laughs) <laughs> uh, everybody seems to know who you are With your oh, wow. YouTube channel and everything So um, Now um, Cody here, we got like Salamanders and uh, some um, Turtles and a few snakes But like you said, not much Because first off, the season's real short for them to be out But uh, right. I suppose Down in the desert southwest You got a much longer Better Variety of stuff anyway
1: yeah, um, we do. We've got pretty diverse wildlife and it's out for quite, quite a good period of the year.
0: Yeah, so what was your, like, can Can you remember back to when you were a child, what your first experience really was with uh, like tarantulas and reptiles? When did you really realize that uh, you were going to, this is what you really had a passion for?
1: Well, I, I definitely knew that I wanted to work with animals. Um, And then I've gone – I've always kind of had an interest. I've always sort of had a a leadership-type personality and enjoyed teaching and working with other people. So educating in animals was a very uh, natural, you know, um, step in that direction. But um, I remember hunting the Westwood Hills for snakes when I was very little not really being afraid of animals like a lot of people were and just being very inquisitive. I remember collecting frogs and turtles and wanting to watch their eggs morph out. From the time I can really remember being able to walk around and, um, of course, being super fascinated with dinosaurs as young as, like, kindergarten and first grade, so that's, like, five, six years old. Wanting to have my own dog and getting my own dog, you know, at a pretty young age and being responsible for her and our other animals. Pretty young.
0: Yeah, I find it amazing that most of us, people that are in this hobby, um, as far back as we can remember, we've always been intrigued by the animals. We've always been uh, never afraid of them. Uh, Like when I was like three years old, when we would come out to North Dakota here from Philadelphia to visit my grandparents, I would go out in the yard and come in with a snake out of my head, like a garter snake or something, and, you know, my grandmother, Oh no, no, you know, but uh, yeah, I was never had a fear of them. And it's kind of uh, ironic that I never did because some people have a, just an amazing fear, like, an, Oh yeah. of and Spiders and things like that.
1: Well, I, I, I believe that for the most part, that's learned behavior. And I think that, as a culture and as a society we're taught even from a religious standpoint to fear snakes to fear reptiles to fear scaly things and um of course the media vilifies you know ridiculously uh reptiles and spiders and things like that so i really feel a strong passion to kind of go against that grain and really teach people that, you know, not only should they not be killed if they're discovered, but they're actually incredible and and gentle and amazing animals. And I think it's really neat when you kind of see people turn that corner from, if I see it, I'm going to kill it, to either, wow, that's neat, you know, it has a right to live, or maybe even, you know, I'd like to have one of those
0: yeah no now I know you're a teacher and uh what what grade do you teach
1: well i i'm licensed pre k through twelve and also um teach college as well i this year i'm teaching fourth grade and i also teach um dance and yoga at the university
0: do you uh like are are you able to take any of your animals in to show your students at all and uh, I what do, do they I do.
1: Oh, gosh, they love it, of course. Um, most of my students are subscribed to me. And um, I keep some animals in the classroom at all times that the kids are um, learning about all the time. And um basically in charge of taking care of. Right now I have uh, Falsuma grandis, some um, giant ge- day geckos in my classroom I have a pair of pink belly side neck turtles a little trio of robo hamsters which are hilarious Um, and then like Friday I took uh, about eight different spiders into my classroom and on my lunch had the entire second grade class because they're in studying spiders right now and so they came on my lunch and I showed them uh, some Malaysian huntsman spiders and some forest scorpions and some exotic tarantulas and just kind of um, did like a quick overview on um, arachnids. Tuesday, I'm going to the high school at night to go give a presentation for their math and science night. And then Thursday, I'm doing another thing for second grade on my lunch. They're studying desert. And they're going to take a field trip to the Living Desert Museum. So, first, I'm going to give them a little breakdown of um, they're going to look at some some desert wildlife. And so, yeah, I, I do a lot in the schools and uh, around the city, like for Boy Scouts and things like that.
0: And that is awesome because, you know, you're touching the minds of children. And it will help them get, you know, so they don't have that fear when they grow up. Um, And you'll be the teacher that everybody remembers. You always have that one teacher you'll (laughs) never forget, you know, you'll be the one that they never forget.
1: I think so. And, or, or maybe my animals will be maybe, but um, I feel like animals make a unique impact on people. And it's interesting because I go with a, with a very highly at risk population Um, kids that, are at a huge disadvantage. And if some of them have never been around animals before, or, or if they have, maybe it's not been good experiences. And so I really feel like a lot of my kids do a total 180 from the time they come to me to the time they leave. And I feel like, you know, that the animals that they work with and learn about um, play a huge factor in that. And so, I mean, I feel like, I'm honored. I'm I'm blessed. I'm so fortunate that I'm able to have access to those animals and have the knowledge and the experience to be able to safely incorporate those into a public school classroom. And obviously that's what my channel is all about.
0: Yeah. It's a lot of education. I learn something every time I watch something on there. Oh, um,
1: cool. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, so, do you ever get parents or anything that come up there and say they don't want their kids around these animals or anything like that? Cause I, we had that problem here where I'm at with, uh, we used to go up to the school all the time and do a presentation for the first graders. Cause I used to learn about snakes. Some It was a snake month or something like that they had in the school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we used to have a little bit of a problem with some of the parents, but w- once we got past that, we can't do it no more due to the fact that, uh, About three towns over, a a student brought in all these little baby raccoons. They were, like, just a couple inches. They didn't even have real hair on them yet. They were just tiny Mm -hmm. little raccoon babies. And uh, they brought them in and were passing them around the classroom. And here, uh, when it was over, they took them into the Humane, not the Humane Society, but the State Veterinary's Office to hand them over or the Game and Wildlife or something like that. And here they had rabies. Uh Uh-huh. So oh my gosh. now they ban all animals from going to schools in North Dakota. So even though a reptile, you know, technically can't get raved. Right. So, I don't know.
1: Um, We've had a little bit of pushback um, here and there. I was very, very fortunate in the past at the middle school I worked at. I actually taught conservation as an elective. And I was allowed to bring in wild and uh, not wild animals, live animals, um, weekly. And uh, I worked with a teacher that had moved from Las Vegas, who was the director of the Las Vegas Conservatory. And she, so she was teaching there, and once a week we would co-teach where I would bring in animals, and I would do live lectures and I would give like a PowerPoint and kind of teach them about bearded dragons or you know, whatever, whatever topic and
0: um talk about the
1: environment there and some of the some of the issues that they're facing with the environment and steps they can take toward conservation. And then like the last forty five minutes the kids would just get to touch the animals, see the animals, ask questions and um you know, we do a live Q and A where they could actually come up and um you know, see the animals and touch them and stuff um i've been i've been pretty lucky i mean i feel like i have a a strong reputation that i kind of built up before i ever met any of these principals but um yeah i've I've been pretty lucky overall there was a period where we had a new superintendent come in who said i couldn't have any animals and so i didn't have animals at the school for a period of time but we made do the kids watch the channel at home. You know, we would still talk about stuff. I'd take them out in the courtyard, and the playground, in the park as much as I could.
0: Okay, well, that's a good way of getting around. I suppose you could have even did a uh, presentation at home and then had them watch it at school. I don't right. know if you guys can do that there.
1: <clears throat> as long as it ties in with a lesson, we can. Obviously, we can't just sit around and
0: you know oh, yeah. watch
1: videos that don't pertain to you know the lesson at all you know it's it's pretty strict that we have to follow the guidelines of common core and all that stuff however um you know there's all types of modalities and video and um you know is one of those so if there was a lesson that tied to something you were doing i definitely would definitely would okay, accompany yeah. a video with that
0: that's uh That's good. I'm I'm glad that, you know, there's at least I'm glad that you're a teacher and you're able to touch the minds of children because it does help in the future later down the road. It really does. Oh,
1: I totally agree.
0: So what was your first tarantula you owned?
1: Uh, My first tarantula, let me think. Actually, I think it was a rose hair. Oh. Yeah, they used yeah, to be. It's funny, you know. Things come in and out in waves. Things that used to be a dime a dozen are now very expensive, and sometimes it kind of goes vice versa too. You know, so it's interesting what, the way things come in and out of popularity.
0: Oh yeah, it's it's uh, you know like I said I've I've been in the hobby of reptiles for thirty five years. I'm kind of you know we used to have the pet store i ran we used to have uh um tarantulas in there but it was i couldn't even tell you what type they were it's been so long ago it's been over <laughs> like 25 years ago or more but uh yeah it was only like one tarantula but we always had desert hairy scorpions in there but uh, um it, it's funny how the popularity of certain tarantulas have changed mm-hmm. over the years um so what's your opinion of the, the laws that they're trying to enforce on the uh, tarantula hobby?
1: Well, what? I'm of the mind that importation and exportation oh, yeah. and travel across state lines. Overall, I feel like it's hurting the captive populations. Which ultimately is going to hurt the wild population populations because the reality is humans have not done a very good job of preserving our planet, and so the truth is that a lot of these animals are not going to have a viable natural habitat in the future. So I feel that it's very, very important that we have a um, diverse population of animals in captivity that we can breed and learn about that way we can sustain them in the future if they do lose their natural habitat. And I think if you close those borders that it really ties the hands of like if I have a female and you have a male that we that we compare to reproduce in captivity, but if they can't be taken across state lines that's going to restrict that. Now, to be clear, I absolutely think that Native populations need to be protected, but I don't think that the measures that they're taking are the right answer, are a good answer. And so overall, to if I just had to choose a position, I would say that I'm against it. I, I'm for protecting the environment. I'm for protecting... The wild populations but I think that there are better better measures I feel like uh, a good idea would be to set up breeding facilities in their native countries and obviously to protect their natural habitat Um, but I don't think limiting limiting the reproduction of the animals that are already in captivity is a is the best measure yeah, see,
0: uh like I say, you know, if the importation, I could see them trying to say you can't import them from other from from where their native lands are come from, you know, import them. But I I do feel that uh, they should be able to breed them in captivity and be able to transport them over state lines. But I could see where they think that if you do that and you start moving animals, you'll import them somehow and Right, but I don't. I, I think they go a little too far sometimes. Uh, like I always say, we are going to protect our. We're going to re- protect species into extinction. Like the, the, there's garter snakes out there in California that uh, are so right. protected that uh, they yeah, only live like in such a small area.
1: Garter. That's, yeah. yeah.
0: And you can't even look at. I mean, you can look at them, but if you touch one, you're in trouble. Right. Yeah. And right. I think if they've let the hobbyists get a hold of some of these or started up some kind of. Breeding programs, I think they could, you know, bring the population back up somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, have that's... you
1: read the Invisible Ark by Dave and Tracy Barker?
0: No, I have not.
1: Oh, it's so good. Basically, well, I'm sure you know who Draven, Dave and Tracy Barker Absolutely. are. Absolutely, um,
0: I know exactly. Yeah, the
1: so they wrote a book um, not too long ago. I want to say within the last ten years, although. It might be older than that. Maybe I just wasn't aware of it. Got it right here. I'll look at the copyright date. Basically, the, it's uh, it's called the Invisible Ark in Defense of Captivity. And um, let's see, what year was this published? Um, I don't see. 2014. Yeah, so pretty recently, within the last five years. Um, what they do is they write a book. To anyone who is concerned or has uh, needs an educated opinion, and they basically speak very plainly about the importance of every little boy who has a leopard gecko and every old lady who has a money tree or a Venus flytrap or people you know who have fifty or sixty snakes how all those people together form a network of privately funded um, dedicated plant and animal caregivers who are supporting the animals themselves individually who are caring for the animals every single day who are learning about them who are reproducing them all on their own dime which is an effort that is what could do times 10,000. Um, all of us working together, we're, we're a huge force of nature and an important one. And what they talk about is if our liberties are removed and we're no longer allowed to do that, it's going to hurt all of those populations of all of those plants and animals because they won't have a natural habitat in the wild, many of them, uh, in the foreseeable future. Now, obviously, I don't want to be pessimistic enough to think that, you know, the whole earth is going to go down in fiery flames, you know, within the next 50 years. But the reality is that we are causing more species of animals to go extinct in this last 100 or 250 years than in the last, you know, 100 years just because we're so destructive. And the more technologically advanced we become, the more destructive we've become.
0: They say we're going through a sixth mass extinction, and it's definitely humans' their fault.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we're we're certainly the worst you know, most violent, most destructive animal this planet's ever seen.
0: And you would think we'd be smarter than that because we are the most intelligent of the animals. We think we could figure out, you know, save this stuff, I guess. I don't know. I was watching a show that we're at a tipping point with the oceans due to the fact that all the fish in the ocean with all the, weighs more than all the fish in the ocean do combined. Right. That's how much plastic mm-hmm. there is in the ocean. It's crazy. I I think they should outlaw plastic completely for bottles and stuff like that. I really do or at least one use plastic stuff. You right. Know, they're actually
1: plastic. doing that in California right now. I think by twenty twenty one they're gonna outlaw the use of single use plastics.
0: Yeah that's that's good. At least it's starting to go in the right direction.
1: Right.
0: Um, yeah. Like where do you see the hobby? And this will go for your reptiles and uh your uh tarantulas or your inverts because I know you got more than just tarantulas. You got centipedes <laughs> and everything. Where where do you see the hobby on this stuff in like let's say 10 years from now?
1: Well, um, you know, there are specific species of animals that kind of rise and fall out of popularity. Um, I see ball pythons continuing to, to, to grow because of their easy nature to care for. They, they're a good size, and the, the morph market, I'm not talking about the website, but that as well, just the potential for genetic diversity in ball pythons is so exciting that you can't help but not get drawn in and the fact that you can start with you know something so small i mean you don't need a whole lot to take care of a ball python and it's never going to i mean you never need a huge area or a whole lot of time to take care of a ball python it doesn't need rain chambers it doesn't need difficult food uh granted they can be trouble to get feeding on occasion but they're just they're pretty easy i see ball pythons continuing to grow um i think that as far as a lot of these animals um many many species they're closing a lot of the borders a lot of the borders yes and um I feel like at this point, what we need to be focusing on is um, reproducing what we have because we are going to, we're going to be very limited The the, basically the populations that we have now or are getting are all we're going to have of many species of boas and inverts and uh, amphibians and i mean they're closing more and more borders essentially a lot of borders have been closed but those countries are beginning to enforce those laws and game and fish now on our end are also beginning to honor those laws and i think it's just going to be a domino effect as more countries speak up about wanting those um laws enforced that where the border's for importing and exporting those animals are just it's just going to be a domino effect that very soon what we're able to receive from wild populations is going to be extremely limited. And so yeah, I right. think that kind of what we have now is what we're going to have to work with in ten years from now. I don't know that we're going to see a lot of new species, So I think that probably some people will get more creative with some of the animals that don't have a lot of morphs. Um, I think people are going to get more focused on looking for those minor subtleties that may eventually prove out into a type of morph. And so I think that we're just going to see a lot of the animals that we have now, but probably be a little no, more refined no, or a little more unique.
0: No. Well, one good thing with the ball pythons is, is uh Over in Europe, they have a whole set of morphs that we don't even have here yet. So Mm -hmm. there's like an untapped resource, just like we have some morphs over here that they don't have over there. So, you know, if they close borders down of other countries that this stuff is exported from, uh, at least, you know, we still have a little bit of give like a little bit of leeway onto what we can do, produce and what we can't produce yet, but, uh, like, uh, I personally think that the next big thing in the next five years is going to be bull snakes, Chinese, the Chinese people over in China, over there, they're, they're buying them up by the thousands for pets. Because oh they yeah. Are, they're, they're, they're a larger snake, but they're, they're very unique. They got a great personality, you know, they, they're the way they hiss. Of course I, you have some in your collection. If I don't, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yes. Um, that's
0: True. But, just the way they are. And uh, I personally think that they're the next big up and coming thing. It's bull snakes, for well, sure.
1: And in China, they had kind of dominated, they've kind of dominated the turtle market. And yes. so I see turtles and tortoises coming up, too. I don't know why people you know, don't aren't more interested in turtles and tortoises now. I mean, I think they're awesome.
0: So do I. I think it has a lot to do with space. You know, you get tortoises, yeah. some of the tortoises need a lot more, but spe- like you, you live out that way, you could have, like I could never have a big tortoise here because nine months out of the year it would have to be indoors because right. of how uh, the temperature changes here, but uh, yeah, the, they, they, the uh, I, I just look at like the the Mexican um, black king snake. now I had a whole collection of those and I was breeding them and I was selling them and the price was down to like $35, you know so mm-hmm. someone comes in and says, I'll buy them all from you, your, your, um, the adults and everything. So I said, sure, you know, take them. And then the fa- like two years later, you can't touch them. Yes, they're like, going for money I like, now. I know,
1: you can't, you can't of, find them.
0: I was like, wow, what the yep. heck happened there?
1: <laughs> I had to big borrow, so and steel to get the ones I have, and they're beauties. Yeah. I love
0: them. Like, Mine only had two little white little dots underneath the chin. Everything was just shiny oh, black. Wow. Now I know. Before I let anything go, now I double check to see what's going on. Oh yeah, <laughs> I like, yeah. I love my king snakes. So, um, <clears throat> so it's a uh, now with with your amphibians. What what all do you have for amphibians? I know you got your your Pac Man frogs. Do you ever plan? Are you going to breed them? Have you bred them? And if you have bred them, what is the technique you use? Because I know some people have a hard time with that. Although there are a lot of yeah. people that do do it very well.
1: Um. So right now for amphibians, all I have are Pac-Man, Pixies, Peepa Peepa. Let me think. I think that's it. Um, I have bred the Pac-Man, but it was before. It seems now a lot of people are saying you have to... Uh, give them hormones for them to reproduce and when I reproduced them it was about the year 2000 and I literally just um, simulated the season put a couple together and they spawned out in a giant like spa bathtub quickly like within a couple of days and those froglets those tadpoles morphed into froglets in four weeks the entire process and it was it was absolutely insane and um there was some cannibalizing going on um and you know that happens in nature and it was unfortunate but you know a lot of those a lot of those little tadpoles they you know they don't Swim right. There's just the numbers are massive. So in nature, some of those tadpoles are those are food for the other ones. And uh, I was I was pretty successful with that. I definitely want to reproduce Pac Man again. I've been raising up a pretty nice colony for almost a year. And I don't know if you saw I did a frog feeding video about two or three months ago, and I showed I don't know probably. 40 to 50 of some of the nicer frogs that I have. And, um, all those will probably, yeah, I'll send you a link. It was, it was pretty cute. Um, we'll, we'll, most of those will be ready to go this, this spring slash summer season. So we'll probably cool them or dry them out in May. And then in June, um, Start their rainy season, feed them up heavy for like one week, and then put them together. And we'll breed Pixies this year too. My biggest male's probably like three and a half pounds or something.
0: Wow, that's. that yeah. amazing how big they get. It's just amazing.
1: Yeah, they're so, really they're really awesome.
0: What were you saying about the hormone thing there? Did it, it would, I, I oh, didn't catch that so, in the beginning?
1: Yeah. Um, people are not able to breed pac-man anymore and what we've been told by three or four people is that all the breeders are doing it by injecting them with hormones um and that that's the only way to get them to reproduce i'm just going to try it the way i did the last time and see what happens i do know that you do need a nice little colony of them you do have to you do have to let them dry out, which people are afraid to do. And it does make me nervous, but they kind of have to go through that cocoon stage to get their reproductive season started. And it's, it is scary. It makes me nervous. I don't like when I go in there and they look mummified, but if they don't go through that natural season, then, um, they they won't reproduce at least in my experience. I if other people have done it, I'm I'm not sure how they did that.
0: Well, I I was watching a, a person who did it, and what he did was I he I don't didn't know I didn't he didn't say anything about the dry season, but he had to create a rain chamber and made it rain on him.
1: Mm-hmm. You know
0: through, and uh, it triggered him to breed. You know he had to go through, he had to yeah, put him in you, like a a pool
1: you definitely want to either simulate a rain season or we have large outdoor ponds and we have some heavy monsoons that come through and it's plenty warm out. Uh, It won't drop below 80 degrees at night. So we, we literally just allow ours to be in the rain. And so obviously that that's what I've done with some of our uh, tropical snakes too, is we've just put them outside. with no lids on the enclosures allowed them to go experience that rainy season and that natural barometric shift and all that. And um, then they breed and, yeah, it's pretty cool. So I I feel fortunate that we live in an area where we have property, actually have animals. I've already got green iguanas and monitors and tortoises outside. Um, We're having to bring them in still sometimes. But they're, they're going out. For sunny afternoons and spending some nights outside.
0: Well, that's good. Get some more natural.
1: Yeah, so what, yeah, it's ideal.
0: Do, do you want any tegus or anything like that?
1: I don't have any tegus right now. I do like tegus. I like agus. I I love lizards. I think they're so awesome. Um, I do like tegus, but I don't have any right now.
0: What kind of uh, lizards do you have then? I've I've seen one that you had some kind of monitor. I can't remember what it was. Should have did my Um, research better. My
1: my biggest monitor that I have is uh, an Asian water monitor that was reproduced by uh, Kevin McCurley of NERD. And he was kind of a rescue. I don't want to make it sound as if he was uh, neglected or anything like that. But he had become quite an escape artist. There were some uh, good reptile keepers that lived in town um, that, that knew what they were doing, but he just was a real handful, and he kept trying to bust out of, they made some really nice enclosures, but he just was too, too smart, and they were working all day, and so he escaped out of their yard, and he got loose and got out in a river, and there was a big old, he, they lived in the city in the historical district, so, you know, he was walking up and down the streets, just terrifying people, and then he got into the river. <laughs> yeah, so it was like in the newspaper that this, you know, there was this, you know, attack lizard, you know, roaming the city, and he was pretty big already by that time. Um, so when he was, after they, they actually found him and got him back, and after that he was completely wild and they never really could work with him easily again. And they just didn't feel like they had enough room at their place. And they, they know us. And so, you know, they said, do you think you could maybe take him from us and we could get a snake from you guys or something. And we were happy to do that because we were just in a slightly better position to care for him just because we have more room and, um, you know, we're just a little more hands-on with the animals. We know that we're going to get, ripped to shreds sometimes and that's totally fine we're that's kind of what we signed up for i don't know if you've ever noticed but my arms are all scarred up and i don't try to show that but if you ever meet me you'll see that i am actually yeah just from iguanas and monitors and all kinds of stuff just you know you get scratched you get whipped you get bitten it's just part of the job
0: Yep. So that's what makes it interesting. We have that one
1: we have that one larger Asian water monitor. We have two Nile monitors. Uh one was a animal control rescue. And the other one came out of Mondoggi from Oklahoma City. And um let's see. Of course we have geckos and stuff like that. I'm trying to think if we have any other lizards right now. I think, yeah, I think those are all the lizards we have right now. I really want to get some lace monitors, and I really want to get some croc monitors. Lace monitors um, Yeah, they're gorgeous. Gorgeous. I like the bell-eye phase of the lace monitors. They're just, oh, man, they're awesome. A
0: croc monitor is no I, joke.
1: <laughs> I know. I don't know if you. I I've done one video with a croc monitor, and the guy was just like, the guy has a zoo, and he was like, that animal is not handleable. And I said, can I please take him out, and play with him? And the guy was like, he's gonna just slash you from end to end. And he said, I have a glove, but if he gets out, if he twists away from you, you're gonna regret it. And he said, but if you want to, if you want to hold him, you can, I guess, you know, you know what you're doing. And so, you know, you can see in the video that I'm really struggling to hold on to him, but I got to hold the croc monitor and he did not slash me. He tried, but he didn't. And um, so that was, you know, I mean, those are awesome and they're beautiful and amazing. Mm. And it was, it was great. I loved it.
0: I do believe that the croc monitor is the most intelligent of the monitors because they will watch you. They will learn your routine. They will, um, you know, they will watch everything you do, and they will learn your routine. And they'll notice if you make a mistake, like uh, if you do one thing all the time, and then one time you just happen to leave the cage door open to run and grab something and come back. They'll know you do that, and they will, they will learn from you. They're very intel. They're the most intelligent of all the... That's uh, just my opinion, but I do believe if, if if one wants to research it, they will find out that most people do say that they are the most intelligent of all the uh, monitors.
1: Well, I know that... So that, that Asian water monitor, he's a, he's a Salvatore, so they named him um, Salazar after Slytherin from Harry Potter, so we kept his name. He absolutely looks for weak areas in i don't um his summer pen is very large we we custom built it for him which uh ledges and it's got a little like underground hide and it's pretty neat he has a big pond in there and he absolutely looks for weaknesses in the door and in in any areas of the uh caging and the fencing in the windows and the Skylights and he can Bend that wire I mean It's reinforced and reinforced and Reinforced and Yeah it's incredible how how Intelligent they are
0: Well, I I think people don't give them the credit That they're due A lot of people don't a lot of people think that they're just A lot of people's mentality is It's just a dumb reptile you know they're not a dog But Mm -hmm. they are more intelligent than you think They are even snakes
1: Oh definitely
0: Um so what was your first reptile you owned?
1: My first reptile. Hmm. Toque geckos. Yeah, well, that was my first exotic reptile. Yeah. So, yeah, I still love tokeys. I think they're awesome. I wish that there were more being reproduced in captivity.
0: There's a bunch I don't of have more any tokeys right
1: now, but, yeah, tokeys are awesome. They're just so beautiful. I have a really funny video of a Tokay biting one of my employees. It was hysterical because he knew what he was doing. And he stuck his finger in the bag anyway. He knew what was <laughs> in there. That's a great video. Yeah,
0: when, when I ran a pet store, around the corner from us was the All Glass Aquarium Company. And they had, a um, down the basement, they sold fish. And the guy who owned the fish, you know, he had a problem with that because he brought a lot of feeder insects in and he did all that stuff. And they were, he always had feeder insects running around this place like crickets and stuff so he came in and bought every toe cake echo we had in the place and he let them loose in there figured well they'll just eat them oh, he yeah. didn't realize that within a couple of years he had thousands of these thousands of mm-hmm. these running around because he had the perfect conditions down there. it was warm humid and oh, they wow. just kept reproducing he, he was out he he was losing <laughs> his mind with them all it was crazy
1: so that's funny
0: um would you like? Could you tell us a little bit about when your husband got bit by that rattlesnake? Because I seen you did that whole mm-hmm. video on it, and you could talk about the life lock. Is that what it? What's called the life lock? Yeah,
1: the the venom lock. Venom lock. So that's last was. last winter, so that shows how warm it is here. Mid December, we were working in our zoo. We were moving some enclosures around, and so. In between every – we had some enclosures, and we put uh, pieces of wood in between them so they all have ventilation, just like two-by-four boards on the corners, just so they're not piled right on top of each other. And so he went out, walked out at dusk to go pull a board out of just a wood pile that we have, and he reached in, and there was – a little atrox, a little western diamondback, Cotillus Aatrox baby in there that was, I don't know, 18 inches long. It was probably a baby from the year before. And it had been an unseasonably warm afternoon. And then a cold front was kind of moving in and it was suddenly getting dark. So we live in a rural area. And so it must have kind of come out of its den to sun itself and then maybe gotten too far and was sort of, Looking for cover in our woodpile, he reached in, and I was within earshot but not right next to him. So he said, "I," he thought he got poked by a nail at first, and he um, so I, you know, he kind of hollered out and for me, and I went over there with my light, and uh, we saw two little blood spots, and we lifted up the the board, and then it started rattling. We saw the snake, so. He said, go get the venom lock. We came in the house. Luckily, our building and all that is on our property not far from our house. The venom lock was in our office. We put it on. We went straight to the ER because he saw of the rattlesnakes we have here, the atrox is definitely more potent venom. And long story short, basically, he, he works at that hospital. So when he came in saying exactly what he'd been bitten by at exactly what time, Everyone knew he knew what he was talking about. They started getting the anti venom ready. One of the nurses who didn't know who he was was telling them, Don't get the anti venom, that's really expensive. And he was not envenomated because he has no symptoms. He's not swollen. There's, you know, if he were envenomated, we would be seeing, you know, signs. And the, the doctor came in and said, get him Crowfab, He knows what he's talking about. So they asked what the venom lock was and everything else. And we said, you know, it's a circumferential compression device to keep the venom in this vacuum until after you get the anti-venom. So the doctor saw that it worked so well that they did not even want him to take the venom lock off but what you're supposed to do is wear it until you get the anti-venom and then take it off so the anti-venom can get to the site of the wound. So the doctor said do not remove it. He removed it himself because we know the inventor, we know the doctor, the toxicologist who invented it, and those were his instructions. And if he does it himself, they can't be held liable for it. So he took it off. Within about five minutes, so he was bitten on his hand. Within about five minutes, his hand was blown up like a balloon. Within about 10 or 15 minutes, no, probably 15 or 20 minutes, he was swollen up to the elbow. And within the hour, he was swollen up to the shoulder, and they decided to life flight him to Texas. So they put us on a plane, uh, fixed wing, and they flew us to uh, UMC in Lubbock. And they sent him to the ICU, and they just kept on pumping him full of antibiotics. And the next day, they decided to simply release us because they were all prepared to do surgery and prepare for compartment syndrome and for him to have necrosis and all this stuff. And by the next day, he was fine. And he the doctors were that. absolutely baffled by the fact that that device was actually so effective that it literally kept the venom in that tiny little pocket. It wasn't able to get into his limp tissue. It was not able to get around his body until after the anti-venom was available, which has never happened before because that device had only been used on large mammal studies where we were the first human trial. Thankfully Mm -hmm. we had it. And so, um, the doctors all were absolutely dumbfounded as, at its results. I mean, so it was very interesting. It was. I mean, obviously that wasn't something we did on purpose, but we were thankful for the Venom Lock. And um, so we have them. People can order them from us. They were the the manufacturer and distributor is Tongs.com. Uh, you can order them on Ana. Amazon. And they're called a Venom Lock, L-O-C-C, because it's a localized um, circumferential compression device, L-O-C-C. So, yeah, it was amazing. It was really incredible, something I'll never forget. So, of course, we had to do a video about it because it was an interesting story and information that we are trying to get out to people because especially in areas where people are living around venomous snakes. I feel like it's important for people to have that device available because, you know, it just makes sense if we know what we're doing and if we're going to be accidentally bitten. We we weren't really paying as much attention as we should have been because it was the wintertime. Of course, in the summertime, we flip boards, you know, with our toe of our boot or with a snake hook or something but because it was the winter time we weren't really thinking about it and so obviously when you live in the desert you probably need should be vigilant year-round but it was it was an interesting interesting experience
0: well there's proof that it works you know oh yeah that's pretty amazing it's amazing that you just happen to get one and then it's like it happened. It, it's amazing. It
1: was, yeah. Well, it, okay. it was You Yeah. Know. Yes, thank you. He's fully recovered. He had oh, within three days, the swelling was mostly gone. Within five to six days, the swelling was completely gone. And he, in his hand where he was bitten at the side of the wound, he had zero necrosis. He had zero tissue damage, but you could feel two little knots where he was envenomated under the skin. And within three or four weeks, you couldn't even feel that anymore. So, yeah, that was, that was a, an amazing experience.
0: I had uh, read an article that as a person, I can't remember who wrote it, but they were, they're, they're, Uh, I think it was uh, Sean Bush, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah. Are you talking about the article that Sean Bush wrote about um, debunking all the venom suction devices?
0: No, no. But I'm pretty sure it was him, though. He was talking about how right away when your arm swells up from a bite or your leg, they want to do a fasciotomy right away. And he says Mm -hmm. you should really try not to let them do that because Chances are you know they could control that after you know it, it sometimes they rush to it too quickly, mm-hmm. you know' cause it, as you've seen your husband's arm swelled up, and you see how fast that right. can the compartment syndrome, but he was talking about how you need to really think about that before you let them do that because of the sometimes the damage that they do doing a fasciotomy is worse than what would happen if you just let it let it let the swelling go down on its own. But mm-hmm. I suppose there yeah. are some cases it has to be done. But yeah, I've seen, them, I, oh, I've seen that too about the, all the suction devices, how they don't work.
1: Well, they don't because what happens is that venom goes into your lymph system and there's no way to suck the venom back out. And so no. we actually had quite a bit of blowback on that video with people saying, oh, Sean Bush said that doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. And interestingly enough, this device is not a suction device. It it keeps the, the venom in that area, but it does not claim to suck the venom out because that doesn't work. That's been proven not to work. And so Sean Bush actually um, was in contact with the same people. He actually is the one that referred the toxicologist who invented this device to the manufacturer saying that could actually work and I think it needs to be manufactured and put on the market. And so I'm not saying that Sean Bush endorses that product because I don't know that he's had any um, feedback once he saw it completely made or um, obviously unless he's seen my husband's medical records, which we have. He probably does not have a professional opinion on the device, um, you know, factually other than theoretically. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate that people were attempting to use the vacuum, the suction devices for all those years when, you know, obviously Sean came in and was like, all right, let me show you how this doesn't work. And that, that's been... Now people understand that you know those are ineffective.
0: Well, that all started with the movies, with people sucking it out here when you get bit on the movies, oh, back in the old yeah, western movies. You
1: know,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, if anybody wants to call in, the number's on here. It says six one nine nine two four zero seven nine five. If anybody has a question, you guys can call in. Uh, but I do have one other thing I want to discuss with you before, because you know. I saw you did some pictures a while back and you had that, what was it like a ghost that walked behind you?
1: Oh yeah.
0: I was going to ask did you ever figure out what that was or anything? Cause we do some paranormal stuff on this, on this podcast too. And it, uh, I just remember when you did that, it, it was pretty neat.
1: Well, well, the story is that, um, I'm a dancer and a model, and you know, so we were we were doing a photo shoot down in this little for little wooded area that um, is known because multiple um, homeless people had kind of hidden, you know, built little forts down in there because it's kind of secluded, and um, m- many of them had died down there during the winter time or through different circumstances. Um, you know, obviously, they. You know, some of them might have been sick, or I'm not sure what the specific circumstances were, but several people have passed away down in that area, and you know, some people are afraid to go down there. But I'm, I'm not particularly superstitious, superstitious and so I wasn't worried about it. And so I had it was myself and about five photographers who were all. Um, shooting pictures from different angles and um, I think we so we had a roll of digital film that I was looking at on the computer and I was just you know I'm sure you know that when during a photo shoot you know maybe a hundred or a thousand pictures are taken and then you know you find like the top five pictures that are just really you know, beautiful angles, beautiful light, whatever, where, where all it all works out that it turns out to be a really amazing photo. So I was just kind of click, 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 you know, going through all these photos. And there was a a series of them that were taken in like a kind of a sports mode, because I was kind of moving my arms doing like some dance motion, sure, that exact second, that was just the perfect moment. And so it was kind of like a, I don't know, like a, old picture movie where it's kind of going in in slow motion and so you can see you can see from second to second that there's definitely something moving in the in the background of the frame so my husband said well what what was that because I was just scrolling through the pictures and I stopped and he said I I don't know I thought I saw something uh, like a I don't know someone in the background or something I didn't see anything. So I continue on and he steps back again where he's looking at it from a little further away. And he said, go back like 30 photos and, and then start skimming forward through them again. And you can see a shadowy figure running. I mean, if if you, if you look at the series of photos, if you just look at one, it kind of blends in with the shadows, but if you, play them all in motion you can see that there is a humanoid shadowy figure running through the background and so we spoke to several people and they said oh well if a plane was going by that's over the field of where the plane sometimes it might be casting a shadow and we looked and there were no planes at that time and someone said oh it might have been so and so in the background and so we went through the photos and we accounted for every person that was, you know, on the scene at the time. And someone else said, oh, well, you know, maybe it was, you know, one of those homeless people that was roaming that you, you know, didn't know was there. And we checked the, like the sun at that time of day, wouldn't have been casting a shadow in that area. I mean, we really looked into it, and we could not find any reasonable scientific explanation for what that could have been. So, um, I mean, we don't know what it was, but evidence would say that it definitely could have possibly been some type of supernatural figure. So several people said, I'm never going down there again. And I'm like, I want to go back. (laughs) (laughs) That's really
0: neat. Well, I know that when, when you put the, I, I can't remember if you just put the photos up or if you put a, made like a little collage video. Type of yeah, we we did. actually
1: made a little a little video showing the the series of photos.
0: And, and I thought it was amazing because you could see it just walk out and just walk right across. <laughs> it was pretty neat. Yeah,
1: it was. It looked like a figure running or something. It was very something, and yeah. it was so funny because someone said, "Oh, that's definitely just a person's shadow that you didn't realize was there." It runs across about three quarters of the frame. And then vanishes. So it's not like a shadow went all the way through the frame from left to right. When it's you know toward the end, it just suddenly vanishes, and um, you can tell by my motions that those are only split. Those images are only split seconds apart. So there's yes. no there's no reasonable explanation for how that was just someone walking through the background, and um, no. yeah. So that was yeah. Pretty
0: neat I I thought it was neat (laughs) I thought it was really cool But uh,
1: Well I'm glad that you've seen So many of my videos
0: (laughs) Oh yeah I I watched a lot of them I found it uh, Because before I got got any tarantulas uh, I did a lot of research Like I think everybody should do Before they get any animals Do a ton of research And your channel was the one that everybody always said She's got so much stuff on here and, uh, that's what, that's how I got, then I subscribed to you and then I've been watching you ever since. So.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So, um. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad yeah. that you like it. I'm glad that you enjoy it.
0: Oh yeah. You got, it's very educational. So, um, are you breeding any snakes this year by chance?
1: Yeah, we are. I have a giant trio of retics, um that are definitely ready to go. We've been putting them together on and off. Uh, sand boas, ball pythons, uh, red tail boas, true red tail boas. Um, else? Oh, yeah, some of my bur- bigger Burmese pythons, uh, bearded <clears throat> dragons. Trigger gliders, horses, mini horses, and mini pigs, and micro pigs.
0: We do have a caller. And of course,
1: tarantulas.
0: Oh, of course, do tarantulas. what? I said we do yeah. have a caller. Uh, oh, cool. 541, do you have a question? Hello, is anybody out there? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> so... Yeah, um, it was great to have you on because um, I know you got to get up early in the morning, uh, and it's kind of getting late. So, is there any like anything? Well, thank anything you for
1: having you... me. This was oh? I haven't done a ton of podcasts, so this was fun.
0: Oh yeah, it was it was great to have you on. Um, do you have any advice for anybody thinking about getting into the hobby? Before we go into either oh, one, reptiles yeah,
1: or. Yeah, it's it's really amazing, totally fulfilling. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. If you're interested, you know, read, watch videos, uh, do whatever you can. Find something you find interesting. And, of course, learn about it. Learn as much as you can about it. Get obsessed over it. Find out how to take care of them. And if it's something that you think that you can do, try it out. And, um try to have a plan b if you know that it may not work out know that your cousin's going to take it off your hands or that you know that your uncle's the manager of the pet store and that he'll let you exchange it for a fish or something but yeah learn as much as you can obviously we're living in a day and age where knowledge is right at your fingertips watch videos read books talk to people go to an expo if you have something like that close to you and if it's something that you're confident that you can responsibly care for, learn about its lifespan. That's something people leave out. They learn about what cage it needs and what it eats, and then they get it and find out it lives for 120 years.
0: <laughs> find out how
1: long it lives.
0: <laughs> and I, I have if, to...
1: yeah, if...
0: oh, Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say you, you did say one thing there that was that you're the first person I've ever heard say that. Have its plan B. Just in case you can't well, you find out it's more yeah. than you can handle, make sure you have somebody who is willing to take it before you get it. Because a lot of people get these and they're like, what do I do now? That's how a lot of things get right. put out into the wild.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, no matter how great you are, sometimes circumstances change. Um, you know, maybe you find out that the place you've lived in for five years, your landlord's going to sell it. And so you you have to move into an apartment without any warning or something you never know. I mean you never know what's going to happen in life. I believe if you're ever going to adopt an animal that you should intend to keep it for its lifespan. but
0: wonder, things happen
1: th- things happen sometimes, and I understand that, and that's how a lot of animals come to us, and that's how a lot of animals get abandoned or or released into the wild when they shouldn't be like you said. And, um, you know, around here, a lot of those, that means people hitting us up and us either taking it or fostering it. But, you know, there are people like that in a lot of areas that, um, or even animal control, you know, and then they can obviously, you know, adopt it to an appropriate owner. And so, yeah, you know, kind of look into the options in your area for what, you know, what you could do if in the case that things didn't work out. Um, like yeah. I said, a lot of people in our area know that that means coming to us and we'll either find it at home or, or something.
0: Yeah, and that's good. At least they know they have somebody they can turn to for help. Um, right. Is it the only other thing I could think of saying about that is that, uh, you know, don't just watch one or learn from one source, Check many sources because that one source you definitely. may check may be wrong. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Or, well, uh, um, you know, what what works for that one person in that one area may not work at all for, for that same species where you live. Yeah, definitely, you know, look into more than one source. Or maybe they have really outdated information or, or maybe they don't know how to take care of it at all. So yeah, well, definitely look into multiple sources of information.
0: And things change all the time like you said about information. So, well, I would like to thank you for coming on. Um it was great to have you on. Uh maybe we'll have to do it again next t- another time. And because uh, yeah. I'm sure that uh I'll be getting bombarded with questions that they want me to ask you,
1: even though they didn't call <laughs> in. Right. I, it
0: happens every time.
1: Oh, that's funny. Well, I'm, I'm more than happy to answer questions. Obviously they can check out my channel or email me at deadlytarrantulagirl at com, And you have, you know, you and I message. So if you have a question, you can just ask me. Um, but also too, um, you're going to be on my channel soon. So your listeners can be looking out for that.
0: Yes, that'll be fun. So.
1: <laughs> awesome. Uh, well,
0: thank you for coming in and, uh, You have a great night and a great week ahead.
1: Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Thank you.
1: Have a good night. Bye.
0: Uh, You too. Bye.